Okay, here we go. Whoa. <laughs> Don't tell me I'm going to feedback all during the study. That won't work. Huh? Yeah, there's reverb. Okay. Is that sounding more like me? Okay. Good. Good to see you all tonight. And uh, um, for, so you don't have to keep asking me. Um, my leg's doing better. And then Ann had, yeah. So it still looks kind of cruddy, but I can show it to kids now. But, uh, but um, you know, it's coming along and it's feeling better and I'm getting my strength back, so that's good. And pray for Ann because she had her eye operated on this week. Uh, she had a cornea transplant and a lens transplant, so um, she's doing well, but she didn't come to church because she can't see very well, so she's listening on the internet. So you, say hi, Ann. Hi, Ann. <laughs> At least I think she's listening on the internet. I set up the computer and I have the arrow on listen live and I j or watch live and I said all you have to do is just click and it'll come on. So we'll see, we'll find out. Otherwise she'll be watching Survivor or something. But uh, let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of 2 John. A little book that people don't uh, pay much attention to but it's a great book. It's just a, there's a wealth of stuff in here. As you probably know, we'll be finishing 1 John this Sunday. And so tonight we're doing 2 John. Next Wednesday, we will be doing the book of 3 John. The following Wednesday, we'll be doing the book of Jude. Those are all one-chapter books. And then in, in January, on Sunday mornings, we're going to start in on the book of Revelation. And on Wednesday nights, we'll be doing some other stuff. So looking forward to that. Uh, second and third John are both books that John wrote that were personal. The book of First John, of course, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, were all kind of written to the churches. But these were a couple of little personal postcards that he wrote, kind of like Philemon was for Paul, that had such beauty and such value that the church just grabbed onto it and they... And, and I think you'll see as we go through it, they fit so well with flowing right out of everything that he taught us in 1 John. But this is a personalized application of, of the truths of 1 John and gives us some more insights into the heart of John. John was a guy, and you know, really, if you want to really know someone and they're a writer, you read what they write in letters to people. Some of some of my uh, favorite books that I've ever read were collections of letters that were written by um, people like C.S. Lewis and people like that, who um, Thomas Jefferson and a lot of different ones, the brilliant writers who, in their personal life, they said a ton in just what they communicated. And so this is that sort of thing for, for John, um, his his personal letter, but boy, can you see his heart just shining through. And it's consistent with everything that he teaches in First John, but it's just a little bit more personal, I think. And so I think you'll enjoy going through it with us tonight. Um, we don't know who he wrote it to exactly. 
um, where they were, likely in Jerusalem, uh, and necessarily even when he wrote it and what occasioned him writing it and where he wrote it from. We just don't have a lot of that information, but it's the, a beautiful letter that he wrote. And it starts out, the elder, both second and third John, he just introduces himself as the elder. There were some people who questioned whether John really wrote these books because he doesn't start out by saying, I'm the Apostle John and I'm writing this book, like Paul would generally do in Paul did in all of his books, except for the book of Hebrews, which I believe he wrote. But that wasn't John's style anyway. He was a, um, a guy who was closer to Jesus than anyone was, um, was, was lying there leaning on his chest during the Last Supper. Um, he knew Jesus well. He was there during all the major events of Jesus' life. And, um, and so... Despite that, he didn't try to make himself a big deal. And you remember that his mom and he and his brother were kind of behind it, and their mom was sort of pushing them, and so they went to Jesus, and so did, so did James and John's mom, and said, Jesus, can my boys sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? But when you see John after the resurrection, and you see him after the day of Pentecost and the man that he had become. <coughs> it's so impressive that he no longer has any kind of ambition. He no longer needs to get the credit. And he, when he, his letters that he wrote, in this case, it's just a humble personal address. In you know the other books that he wrote, it's clearly all about Jesus, his, his gospel where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then later in the chapter, he says, I'm John, and I'm writing this. But in, and in, back in 1 John, we saw you know, a similar kind of introduction where he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the Word of life. And you know, in the book of Revelation that we'll see as we get into there, he begins not with, you know, stuff about him, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. So John's not one to build himself up and brag about himself, although he had the credentials to be able to do it. But there's something about a heart of love and John's known as the apostle of love, and he talks about love constantly. But there's something about love that humbles you. Um, love and pride are opposites. You cannot be loving and also be prideful. And that which keeps you from loving is generally your pride, your personal um, wanting to protect your own space, your own reputation, your own priorities, and things like that. And so... Love is a natural outflowing of humility, and, and humility is also a natural outflowing of love. And we see this from John here. But he, but he says, The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace 
will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. That's the introduction to it. And, it, and it's full of content, even in the way he addresses this letter. Um, a little odd to address a letter to the elect lady. And there are a whole lot of different theories as to what that means, because it's unique in Scripture. Um, generally, if a, if a letter is a personal letter, like, like Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, it just comes right out and says it. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Um, if a letter is written to particular churches, that's usually stated. The, the various positions on what this elect lady is um, vary quite a bit. Um, there, are even, there are some people who think that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there in Jerusalem and it was sent to her specifically. Um, that was a very late suggestion. No one, no one uh, suggested that in the first thousand years or more of church history. So that's probably a stretch. And you see as we go through it, it probably is as well. But um, others have suggested that he is referring to a church by a feminine name. And because certainly the church is elect, it's chosen by God. And so the the thought is that perhaps here he's personalizing something to a church by using a feminine uh, noun um, but individual churches are not addressed in a in a female context anywhere other than in places where it's hugely symbolic that's very uh, very clearly so and so that's probably a little weak um, there are people who suggest that maybe he's addressing it because sometimes, like we'll see in the book of Revelation, that, that the letters to the churches are, seem to be addressed to the leader of the individual church. But that presents a bit of a problem if there's a, a woman who was the pastor of the church. Um, not that women couldn't do it. I think they do it much better than men, which is why God calls men to pastor because he wants to stretch us. Um, I mean, there's certainly nothing about it. Well, men are just superior to women. Um, but that's not likely, especially in those days. Um, some people have suggested, and it seems like he's addressing at least partly a woman who opened her house and perhaps had a church meeting at her home. Uh, and that could be likely. That happened a lot in the early church. And you remember John Mark's mother had a church meeting in her house. Um, and so it's, uh, there are a lot of different ideas. Now, one that I think is the best suggestion, and it's the one that I lean toward at this point, um, is that he's not addressing her as elect lady. Um, that would be a little odd, but then later he calls her lady again, and then he refers to her sister as being your elect sister. And so it seems to be a personal letter. And um, the word that's translated there, lady, is the word syria in the Greek. It's the feminine version of the Greek word kurios, which is generally translated lord. And so when you make a feminine noun out of, out of lord, it would be lady 
you know, because of lord and lady uh, in terms of royalty and things like that. And so, and, and the name Syria or Syria was a pretty common female name we know back in the first and second century. And so my guess is that this is just a letter written to Syria and then he, he addresses her by name and calls her that she tells her she's elect, she's chosen, she's special. And so I'm gonna move forward with that assumption, um, but you can believe that it's uh, Hillary Clinton or anybody else that you want. I, it doesn't really matter what he says, but, but I think seeing this as a personal letter to a woman has a lot to tell us just right there. As, and it was only in Christianity that women had any respect at all. Women were seen by every other religion as either being non-people or as being sex objects. And never until Jesus came were women held up in respect, were in positions of leadership and influence. Um, it was unheard of, in, not only in, in the various religious cultures, but in the various political cultures, in, in the Roman in the Roman uh, Empire, women, unless they were married to royalty, they, they had no status at all. But Jesus changed that, as he even said, that when it, comes up to, when it comes to God, there is no male or female. And Jesus spent a lot of time pointing out women as being good examples and positive examples, allowing them to worship him and calling attention to them, commending them, he, when Jesus rose from the dead, the first witnesses to his resurrection, the first several witnesses to his resurrection were all women. In those days, a woman wasn't even allowed to testify in court because what she said didn't mean anything. But Jesus didn't care about that. He chose that his first witnesses of his resurrection were women. And so he put them in a, in a real special and an elevated place and always through the Gospels it calls attention to these women who would serve Jesus, travel with him, help minister to him, and things like that. So um, understanding that and realizing that John would, would see himself as someone who would take the time to write this affectionate, caring, spiritual letter to a, a woman who most likely, it talks about her kids, but it doesn't talk about her husband. So she's most likely either her husband has died or has deserted her because of her faith or something like that. And so here John's just reaching out to her and he calls himself, you know, the elder, um, implying that, and he was probably pretty aged at the time, but he's, he's coming to her with a real familial kind of relationship, but saying, look, I'm older, the implication is you're younger, but I wanna share these things with you. You matter to me. Um, you, you make a difference in my life and I, and I, and I esteem you, and I, and I think that's beautiful. But as he says um, to the elect Syria and her children, whom I love in truth, and you see here for um, these first three verses, the, the idea of love and truth, and really throughout the book, and we, see, we saw it a lot in 1 John as well, 
the way that love and truth go together. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. We usually think of love and truth as being two separate things. It's like, do you want me to be loving or do you want me to tell you the truth? And yet the scriptures always show us that love does tell the truth. Love doesn't lie and deceive. Love tells the truth. And also, if you see the truth, it will always be loving. Anything that's less than loving is less than truthful. And anything that's less than truthful is less than loving. The reason is if you, if you get the big picture, if you see people the way God sees them, you'll discover the, that the truth about them is something really amazing, something really treasured and special and valuable. And if you see someone as worthless, you're not seeing them the way God sees them. And at the same time, if you drill down to the essence of someone and you can see them for who they are, you can't help but love them. You can't help but care about them and have your heart touched by them. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm saying that I love you and your kids, and I'm not just saying that. I, I'm not just saying it because this is an introduction to a letter. Like, dear Cyria. But dear doesn't really mean you're dear to me. It just means that's what you say because of the, I don't want to say Cyria colon because it's not a formal address. But he's saying, no, when I say I love you, Cyria, and I love your kids, I mean it. That's the truth. And I, and I love that he says who I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. And that, again, like I'm saying, how the truth and love go together. This is such a nice thing for him to say. In essence, what he's saying is, I really love you guys. I really care about you. You really matter to me. And anyone who knows anything would feel the same way about you. Um, it's rare when we find someone who, who really loves us. But when that happens, they're giving us a perspective that comes from God's perspective of us. But to say, look, I, I'm not loving you because I'm so generous, or I'm not loving you because I'm kind of deluded and deceived about who you really are. I know exactly who you are, and I love you. And like the old song says, to know you is to love you. And that's what he's saying. He said, anybody who doesn't love you really doesn't know you. They really misunderstand you. And, I, and there's so much truth in that. And sometimes we have a hard time loving someone because we really don't know them. We really don't connect with them in that way. We don't take the time to. We don't desire to. There are some people that just won't let you get close enough to love them. And that's tragic. But people have been burned so much by people who say they love them that a lot of times you just get jaded and you just kind of give up on that. But if they give you that incredible privilege of letting, you know, of letting you into their heart and letting you really know them, you'll find that people are very much alike and that you will love anyone who you really know, uh, really know. But it's just a question of do you want to do the heavy lifting to get to that point where you actually establish that kind of a relationship. And it takes two to tango. I mean, somebody else has to be willing to do that 
and to let you into their life, and you have to be willing to, to, to love someone. And when you do, you discover that the truth is great. We've all been had people profess love for us that wasn't based on the truth. Because let's face it, in our society, if you just act like yourself, a lot of people aren't going to love you because they don't love who you are and what you do. The reason is that most people in our society are really in love with just one person. And it's the person that they see when they look in the mirror. And so, and so we tend to kind of love people if they are our fans. If, if people will say what you know, they want us to, you know, what, what, what we want them to say, then we go, wow, you're, you have great taste. You know, you're just, I really like you because you remind me of, well, you remind me of me, and I am my favorite person. And so, and, and so but that generally happens once in a rare thing in your life. You'll meet someone who's a whole lot like you. But in general, people are different than you are, and, and the essence of love is reaching across those differences and, and, and loving someone unconditionally, as John has been saying throughout the book of 1 John. So the, the challenge for all of us is to be selfless enough to be able to love someone who's different than we are, and through doing that, we discovered the advantages and the beauty of those differences. And that's loving in truth. That's the real deal. And I, as I've said before, you'll never find out if someone's your friend until you do something that they don't want you to do. Your love is tested every time the person that you love doesn't play along with your game. Or they don't do what you want them to do or say what you want them to say. And every time there's that clash, that's a test of love. And if, if you just are totally submissive to someone, whatever they say goes, and you treat them with kid gloves and you baby them, you'll never know if they even care about you at all. Because all you are is just a Hollywood extra propping them up and making them feel good about who they are. So we sit there and we lie to people in order to make them feel loved rather than doing the hard work of actually connecting with people and having love that's for real. But John, who was the apostle of love, who said, you know, look, this is how you know you're a Christian. If you love, you're a Christian. If you don't, you're not. And now he's saying, I, I just want you to know, Cyria, I'm, I'm talking about a real love that's based on the truth. I know you. I know your kids. And I, I really do love you guys. And, and he said, anybody who, who knows the truth about you would love you. That's, you know, I... I I would love that feeling of if someone loved me and then said, anybody who doesn't like you just doesn't get it. They're just stupid. Um, I kind of believe that deep down inside, but um, I just see a pattern where a lot of times people get to know me a little better and they've had enough. And so, but, but to have this kind of love where it's like, yeah, I totally get you. I know what you're doing and I don't approve of what you do a lot of times, but you know, I see who you really are, and I, and I really do love you. And that's kind of where John's coming from here. And then, again, Second John verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. 
So he's saying this is a family thing, and <coughs> he puts grace, mercy, and peace together. Grace is giving someone something that they completely don't deserve and that they haven't paid for. It's just absolutely unconditional acceptance is what grace is. Mercy is when you cut people slack. They do something that you ought to slap them for, but you don't because you're showing mercy and you're like, okay, I'm going to let that one pass. Um, and, and then, of course, peace is the result of that. If you don't have peace in your life, and to whatever extent you don't have peace in your life, you can pretty much trace it to grace and mercy being missing in your life. Because when you know grace, and when you've received mercy, and when you show mercy, and you show grace, it does something in you. Every time you lose your peace, it's usually because someone isn't being gracious to you, or you're not being gracious to them. Uh, it, it can start as simply as having going, wow, what a beautiful day this is. And then the traffic slows down on El Toro because they've been working on that street for since I was a little boy. <laughs> and all of a sudden, now my peace is gone. And really what that comes down to is I'm not gracious to all those government workers that need work. I'm not gracious to the people who are driving very slow in front of me, they're those kind of people who when they drive down a street where there's construction, they slam on their brakes because they're just like, wait a minute, what is this? But with grace and mercy, it would be like, I'm at peace. It's no big deal. And that's the way it is with our lives completely. But it's such a gift. And I, have, I get to have this happen sometimes because I get to talk to a lot of people because a lot of people come to church and hear me on the radio or whatever and and um, I don't really say anything special, but the one thing that I know that I want to come across, and I think it does because I hear people every day telling me this, is I want people to understand the reality of grace. Because I, I was a part of Christianity and a part of the church for so long and didn't get that. And, and I don't see a whole lot of it, frankly. I'm not saying I'm better than everyone else. I'm probably worse than everyone else, so I had to discover grace. But... but to see someone who's bound up, to see someone who's upset and stressed and worried, and to be able to show them grace and mercy and have them just go, oh, that feels so good. That's one of the greatest um, privileges that we can ever have in life is to set people free. And that's what Jesus said he came to do. That's why the gospel is good news. Because it's like, okay, you've been trying really hard. You can stop that now. You don't have to do this. You don't have to hold it together. You can just take it easy. That doesn't mean you don't do anything. But you don't feel like you have the burden of, of making life work for yourself. You have that grace where it's safe to make a mistake. You have that mercy that knows that, I don't have to drive watching my rearview mirror all the time because of things that are in my past. I, I can move forward. I can go ahead. And to be able to give that gift of peace by showing grace and mercy, whether it's to your kids or to your friends or strangers that you meet, I'm telling you, it's just one of the greatest feelings in the world to see a burden lifted off of someone. As Jesus said, 
My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. To be able to declare that to people is just a huge privilege. On the other hand, to talk to somebody and see them go from peace to stress, you know you did something wrong. And I've been there too. And I've had those conversations where it's like, I thought, okay, I need to get this person's attention. And it doesn't go well. And you just see them more stressed now than when you started talking. That's an awful feeling. I don't ever want someone to like come to church and then go away feeling uptight and upset. Um, I know there are some people who are going to leave church feeling that way, but I hope it's just for totally stupid reasons, like they're just a Pharisee or something. I hope it's not because grace didn't come through. Some people get stressed when they hear about grace. I mean, I've had people come at the back door and want to argue with me because they thought I made grace sound too good. And they thought, man, people are just going to go sin because you told them about grace. And I go, well, sorry if it works that way, but I did it that way because that's what Jesus did. And that's what the whole Bible does. That's what Paul said the good news, the gospel is. And, and Paul said it won't have that effect. And John says it won't have that effect. And so I don't mind somebody like that getting uptight because they need to get uptight. You know, kind of like a baby with dirty diapers. They need to feel a rash before they, before they really get what's going on here, you know? And it's probably a bad illustration. <laughs> it's this microphone. It just does that to me. But, but grace and mercy should be what we are offering to others and what we are receiving constantly. If, if, you, if the people that you talk to all day long don't show you grace and mercy... Find somebody else to talk to. Seriously. You need to find somebody who will tell you the truth. And the truth is, Jesus Christ loves you so much, he gave himself for you, he died for you, and he says, all you have to do is agree with me, and you're totally fine. You're completely forgiven, and you don't have to make it happen. You just have to let it happen. And, and that's the truth. That's the most important truth that, that there is in the entire existence of this universe and beyond is the truth of grace and mercy. So walk in that and, and, and listen to that and share that with others. And, and so John says he does that, and, it, and, it, and he makes it a family thing. God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's God also, but he's the Son of the Father in truth and love. He's saying this is a family deal. When you come to Jesus, you join a family. And the way that the that the Godhead relates, the way the Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally connected in this loving relationship, that's what it's supposed to look like. That's how we are supposed to live. And so he's just reminding Syria of this, and there's so much there. I could, I could go on and on on these three verses, but you know, who would know that I'd be pushed for time on getting through a, a book with 13 verses in it. But, uh, <laughs> but I love this book. But you get the idea, and then he goes on. And, and in verse 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. That's kind of disturbing in a way. And you'll notice um, in our translation, the word some is in italics. Um, it's probably implied, though, because what it says is, I have found of your children walking in truth. And so the idea is he's 
saying that he had already greeted her and her kids and said how much he loved them. And, and he says, out of your kids, there are those who are walking in the truth. Um, the truth is believing what God says and obeying his commandments. And he said his commandment is to love one another. Now, there are different theories as to exactly what this means. Most commentators would agree that it's some of her children are seen as walking in truth. Now, if, if I'm wrong about this being a, a lady named Cyria, and I'm not, but if I, just if I happen to have been, um, then he'd probably be talking about people in the church, that some of them are and some of them aren't. And that would, that would be true about every church, certainly, and, the, and it applies. But we've received commandment from the Father, and he talks about his commandment being love in just a moment. <coughs> but some people believe that Paul had on, I mean Paul, John had only heard from some of her kids. So maybe they were traveling where he was going or they kept in touch with him. And so it would be like if you know a family that has eight kids and you've seen three of them, you might say, man, the kids that I've heard from, Sound like they're doing great. I don't know about the others. But that probably, to me, that isn't as likely because of context, but also because um, if you talked to a few siblings, you're probably going to hear how their siblings are doing. And so and that's what happens when you see someone you haven't seen for a while and they have a big family. You do the rundown. Um, and you go, okay, what about this one? What about this one? Now, I know women are better about doing that than, than men are because, you know, I'll see somebody I haven't seen for a long time and come home and tell Ann, oh, I saw so-and-so, and she goes, oh, did you ask him this and this and this? And I go, no, I don't, do, I don't ask people stuff, you know. But, but um, he no doubt had heard, and most likely, and I think you can see as we go into the next verse, probably some of her kids were doing well and some of them weren't. Because look at what he says next. Um, some of them are walking in truth. And I'll talk about that word walk in a minute. It comes up a few times. Um, but just like the Father commanded us, again, that family connection. I love that if these kids didn't have a dad and if Cyria didn't have a husband, that John is just stressing, you know, the Father. And for a lot of people, and we talk about this a lot, it's hard to connect with God as a father um, because maybe your father wasn't so great. And no father was perfect. If you had the best father in the world, he was still difficult sometimes. Um, but our heavenly father is the one who is what our earthly father should have been. And so if we're missing that fatherly presence, um, and, you know, for me, I mean, I just have scant little positive memories with my dad, um, mostly really, really bad memories of my father. Um, and yet, I know what I missed, kind of. When I was younger, I thought, <laughs> who needs a dad? I didn't have one. I, I did fine. I'm stronger. I'm more independent. You know, he could have named me Sue and left me, and I would have been tough. But as I got older, and especially as I had my own kids, I'm just like, 
I, I understand what a father does and what a father is or what they're supposed to be. And, and I can compare. Some fathers are great. Some aren't. I, I really was never the greatest father because I didn't have a father, but I tried really hard. It meant a, meant a whole lot to me to be a father. And now I appreciate that much more, God as my father. And so he's just kind of letting her know, you have a father. You guys aren't just on your own. And, you know, a single mom who's raising kids, that's, that's tough. And whether you're literally a single mom or whether you're just a mom who's been given the whole responsibility for the kids and you have a husband who's just kind of separated himself from the action and hides at work as much as possible, um, to know that you're not alone, to know that you have a heavenly father who's watching over you is, is really a beautiful thing to get a hold of and to feel that protection. And, and he goes into that some more later. But notice, as he says, some of them are walking in truth, just like our dad said to. And he says in verse 5, and now I plead with you, lady. Now, it's kind of weird that he shifts his focus a bit. And up until this point, he's going, man, I love you, Grace. Man, I hear a bunch of your kids are doing good. But now he's going, Syria, I'm begging you something. And that's why I take the interpretation that some of her children weren't walking. Because he says, I plead with you, Syria, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. He says, Cyria, you're great. You're awesome. I love you. You're very, very special to me, very dear to me. Your kids are special to me. And I've noticed that some of them are doing great. And they're walking with the Lord, just like Jesus said to. And they're loving and caring about each other. But without even being negative about the ones who aren't, he says, I'm begging you. Obey what Jesus told us to do. This is nothing new. This was the commandment from the beginning that we would love one another. And sometimes a parent who's just tired of dealing with their kids' garbage can get to the point where they begin to show favoritism toward the overly compliant children and the children who are kind of rebellious they just let them know i don't approve of you i you're you're the black sheep of the family you are um you're a rebel and and so often by not letting our kids even when they're grown find their own relationship with the lord um we become alienated from them and there are people who, who can't even, they haven't spoken to their grown children in years and years because of some stupid thing that they were fighting over that doesn't even matter. But they, but they won't allow God's love to be predominant. And, I, I, and I, if I've had this conversation once, I've had it a thousand times in counseling with parents whose kids are difficult. And I just say, you know what? They're just about grown or they are grown or they are adults or they're close to it. And I say, you know what your job is right now is not to fix them, is not to persuade them, is not even to protect them. Your job right now is to make them feel loved. That's the best thing you can do for them. And that is powerful medicine. 
And we, and we have to be, especially for righteous people, people who are doing good with the Lord, maybe somebody who is having missionaries stay at her house, and she's one of these super spiritual people. And then some of her bad kids are bringing home their rock and roll music and stuff, and she's just like, why can't you listen to, to you know, Matt Redman like your brother? And you know what? Maybe it's time for you to leave. And sending that message and just kind of cutting off and forgetting that you love these people. You know, it's one of the, it's interesting, and it comes throughout this, this letter too, but, but the idea of God protecting us, um, and we're going to see this Sunday from First John chapter 5 also, a lot of times we can be so protective that we're not protective. You know what I mean? I mean, you've seen kids that grow up and they're just like shielded from everything. And then they get older and they just go crazy because they've never had a chance to even make decisions on their own. And raising children, whether you like it or not, is a process of letting go, is a process of giving those kids the same freedom that God gives them. And that is even the freedom to reject God if that's what they choose. And if you don't understand that, what you'll do is you'll raise kids that are like all really nice in front of you, and then they get away from you and they're going to go completely nuts because they've never had a chance to make decisions on their own as God allows them to do it. All, all you have to do is think about what God does with you. God could stop you from breathing every time you, every time you did something wrong. He could pinch your carotid artery and the blood would slow down to the brain and you'd start to pass out and you'd go, never mind, I don't want to do that. Um, but he doesn't. He goes, go ahead. No, go ahead. Do what you're going to do. He lets us do that because ultimately when we see his grace, we will realize I can stop killing myself now. I don't have to keep doing things that are destructive. And so, you know, here... There's this old guy, John, who's watched a lot of generations come up and go. And he's going, Syria, I'm begging you, love all of your kids. Love the ones that aren't walking with God as much as you love the ones that are. Um, the Pharisees didn't understand this, and that's why Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, where the young son went out and got drunk, messed around with girls, threw away all his money, gambling and everything. And, and then he finally comes home. He's just a mess. He stinks. And, and his dad, like, throws his arms around him, puts his coat on him, puts his ring on his finger, kills a fatted calf, has a barbecue, and he's, like, celebrating. And the older brother is going, what about me? I, he's been a dirtbag, and I've, I've been doing everything that you want me to do. And the whole parable was told against the Pharisees because they had no compassion for people who were rebellious. You know, having a rebellious kid is difficult, but I'm telling you, a million times over, you'd rather have a strong child who rebels to a degree and then decides that they want to live sensibly than to have that overly compliant child who does everything that you tell them to do. You raise them with growing kids God's way. You whip them into shape. You didn't accept anything other than yes, sir, yes, ma'am, Mr. This, Mrs. That. And then you find out you've just raised one of the Hitler youth who just does whatever they are told. It doesn't matter who tells them. And I've seen it happen so many times where that overly compliant child gets rewarded as being 
You know, why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like your sister? When in reality, God has an individual plan for everyone. And what every person in this world needs is to understand the one commandment that really matters. Let's love each other. And so John is just begging Cyria, come on, love all your kids. Paul had, or John had already said, I love all your kids and you. For real. It's true. Can you love someone who's in rebellion against God? Is that even possible? It better be, man, or you guys are in big trouble. <laughs> because we're all rebelling against God in one way or another. Sometimes we're Christians long enough that we get rid of all the really obvious sins, and then we make sure that the others are concealed and secretive enough, or, or we, we make a gentleman's agreement with all other Christians that certain sins, let's just all agree they don't matter, and so, you know, let's just do it, you know. And, and, but we all need his grace. It's as simple as that. And all John is saying is, show grace and mercy to your kids, for real, in truth. Let your kids be honest with you and you still love them. Don't treat your kids like you're disgusted by them so then they realize I better not tell mom and dad what's going on. And um, this is like an old man going to a mom who's overwhelmed by her kids and just saying, you know what, I love you and I love your kids and I'm begging you. Make sure that that is at the center of your relationship with your kids. Because in the final analysis, very few things that you do for your kids are going to matter. If your kids know that you love them and they know that God loves them, you can be very strict, you can be very lenient. It, it, that stuff doesn't even matter in the long run. Our lives become what they become because of whether or not we understand mercy and grace, whether or not we really know that we are loved. And someone who knows they are loved, they're going to be fine. They're going to be just fine. And so he says, I'm pleading with you, love one another. And he said, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. He goes, this is a walk. And the word there for walk is an interesting word. Um, the word is, is a word, is peri, which means around. You know, we talk about a perimeter of something. It's the measure around something. And then the word pateo, which is kind of translated here walk. So this would be like walk around, except pateo is a Greek word that meant more than walk. It meant stomp. It's like, it's, it's totally indicative of someone who's determined, who... All you have to do is watch little kids walk, and you understand exactly what this is. They're going all over the place, but they know where they're going. I don't know where they're going. I don't even worry about it that much. It's just they know where they're going. They're on a beeline, and their little feet are just stomping. And he's saying, that's our walk. That's, it, it, it's, not, it's not a race to see who gets there first. It's a walk. And so he says, you know, as he used the word in verse 4, that some of your children are parapateoing. Some of your children are walking around, stomping around um, in truth. Some of them aren't. But he goes, love is you need to walk like that. Walk in truth. Walk in grace. 
walk in love, be determined and deliberate, and know where you're going and what you're doing. And so, uh, and you've heard it from the beginning, all we're told is just walk in it. Now, and he, he uses the metaphor of walking in this chapter quite a bit, and I hope we'll have time to point out a couple others. But in, in verse 7 now, he seems to shift gears, and he's talking about deceivers. And for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And I really think this fits well with what he's saying in saying make sure you love your kids because what he's saying is there are a bunch of people out there who want to lead them astray. And so don't get all shocked when they get sucked off into something that's unhealthy. Don't, don't be surprised when they are attracted by what attracts most of the world. And, you know, those of you who have kids have already realized this. The stronger you object to things they want to do, the more they want to do them. You know, if, if, you, have a, if you have a daughter and she brings home her first boyfriend and he's just somebody, you look at him and he's just a, you can just tell, you can see right through him, man, this is a greasy, no good bum. The best thing for a parent to do is to go start calling him son and like <laughs> acting like you really like him and go, go, hey, buddy, sometime me and you will go somewhere without her. And Believe me, your daughter will lose interest in that guy really quickly. <laughs> but, but we have to realize there's a lot of temptation out there, and most of the world is full of it. You know, it, it, Compare some of your children who are walking in the truth to many who are deceivers. The odds are against us, so don't be surprised when there are those who would lead our kids astray, those who would, who would damage them in some way. And uh, that word for deceiver, by the way, is the word planos. Um, in the Greek, it's a, it's a word that meant to walk around, to wander. It, was, uh, it, it became a deceiver because there were all these traveling snake oil salesmen who... Um, Really what the word means literally would be what, back in the dark ages when it wasn't politically incorrect to say it, it'd be a hobo, you know, a bum. It used to be okay to call people bums and hobos, but, you know, now we call them community activists or whatever. But, but, um, <laughs> but what he's saying is these are people who are totally unproductive. They're just wandering around and don't go anywhere. It's contrasting them with people who know where they're going, and they, you know, like, uh, well, the song that reminds me of it is, reminds me of a funny story when my son William was in Sunday school, like when he was two years old, three years old, they were doing worship, and they said, does anyone have a song you want to request? And William s raised his hand, and he goes to the worship leader, he said, do you know round, round, get around, I get around? <laughs> the Beach Boys song, they didn't, um, thankfully. But um, the, the peripatia, the walking, is a person that gets around. They know they're stomping, they're heading somewhere, they have direction. This deceiver is somebody who's just aimlessly going through life, picking up a little of this, a little of that, conning people, ripping them off. And it came to be synonymous with con man. But the root word came from somebody who's just wandering in their walk as opposed to someone who's intentionally walking. And so he says, 
There are people out there in this world who don't confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So they disagree with who we say Jesus is. He's Jesus Christ. Jesus, he's our Savior. Christ, he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And he's come in the flesh, that's Christmas. God became a man. And so in this little statement of Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is, is strongly implied the fact that he's God because he didn't just appear, he came. He came in the flesh, therefore he wasn't always in the flesh and he was the one who Jehovah would save his people from their sins is where the name Jesus comes from and Christ, he was the anointed one, he's the Messiah, but he said, don't be surprised that a whole lot of people out there don't believe in Jesus the way we do. They're outnumbered. And again, a part of this goes with the influence that they might have on our kids. And we need to realize we can't expect people who don't believe in Jesus to teach our kids about Jesus. It's why I don't get all worked up about even uh, prayer in schools. And I know this is a big hot-button issue, and it is kind of a sad comment that we did away with it, except that prayer in schools, when I was a kid, they prayed in school. But it wasn't a real prayer. It was a ritual thing. The teacher maybe didn't even believe in God, but you know, you would all say together like Sheriff John's lunchtime prayer, and, and, uh, you know, and, and then it was like, yeah, there we prayed. Well, I'm not really sure that I would want some atheist teacher leading my kid in prayer or teaching them the Bible as literature, or things like that. And so, you know, his, John's acknowledgement here is, don't expect anything different than that most people are trying to corrupt the truth about Jesus. But the one thing that we have going for us is that what we believe is true, and what they believe is a lie, and ultimately what we believe can give us peace and grace and mercy, and what they believe will make them miserable, and it will take care of itself, but the, the idea is, don't be shocked when our kids are assaulted by those who would want to destroy their faith. Um, it's going to happen. But he goes on and says, look to yourselves. You know, this is a deceiver and an antichrist, but look to yourselves that we do not lose those things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Hmm. Look to yourselves. See, God is protecting us, but he expects us to protect ourselves too, and we'll see that on Sunday as well. Um, our job isn't to pay attention to everyone out there. My job is not to expose all of the antichrists and all the phonies. My job is not to try to convert society Society is not going to be converted. That's why most of them will be killed someday when Jesus comes back. Sorry, but that's just the way it is. Because most people don't want Jesus. They don't want peace. They don't want love. They want selfishness. And, and so don't expect it to be otherwise. But then he says, but look to yourselves. Make sure that we are doing what we are supposed to do. Because when we love each other, that's something that no one can refute. And if you truly have a loving home where your kids really understand grace and the security that's involved in that, it's much less likely that they're going to wander off 
it's much less likely that they'll end up being lost. It's, you know, and people are really concerned, and I totally understand it, why, um, you know, the younger generation, when they get to college, between their freshman and senior year of college, like 80% of them have stopped going to church. And that is something that disturbs me. But I don't think it's because we haven't taught them enough. But I think maybe a part of it, at least, is that we haven't lived consistently. We haven't watched our own lives to be a good example. And we're not as loving as we ought to be. And if it's true that everybody in this world is looking for love, um, and they don't find it in your home, they don't find it in the church, well, they're going to be looking for love in all the wrong places because their water seeks its own level, and they're going to find it where they can find it. And, and that is an indictment on us. If we're not doing what we're supposed to do, no wonder people start looking elsewhere. Now, there is something within everyone that wants to go out and find out the truth for themselves, and I'm not saying that no one will ever backslide or you know, no one will ever rebel because everyone has to find their own personal relationship with the Lord. But what I'm suggesting is, and what John seems to be saying here, is that we need to do what it is that we do. Because if we do, people will see that as a viable lifestyle option, see it as a viable alternative. And frankly, an awful lot of the time, what they see in church is a bunch of religion, a bunch of ritual, a bunch of formality, a bunch of hip hypocrisy and, and phoniness. And, you know, you can get that anywhere. I mean, uh, I could, this, in this last week, I had a chance to go to a, a Ducks game, and a friend of mine gave me tickets on the front row, right on the ice. And man, was that amazing, an amazing experience. And then last night, went to the Laker game. And I'll be honest with you, you go to a hockey game or a basketball game, those people seem like they're a lot happier to be there than a lot of the people who show up in church. Not everyone, but if, so if, if that's what people want, they may try to find it in other places, maybe at the Cheers bar where everybody knows your name. But what, what John is saying is, hey, given the fact that we are outnumbered, we need to do what we do and do it right. And so he says, look to yourselves. Take a look in the mirror. Don't go way beyond that. And that we, but I love too that he doesn't say you, you, you. He says, look to yourselves. And then he says, we're in this together. That we don't lose those things that we worked for, that we may receive a full reward. You see that affection. You see that relationship. You see that sense of, John not going, I'm concerned about your generation. He's going, come on, we can do this. There are a lot of things that you look at and you feel like you have to do it and it looks overwhelming and you just feel like, I can't do it. And then someone comes along and even helps you just a little bit. And, th and as they begin to help you, you get fired up again. And you're like, yeah, because they come along and go, oh, we can clean this up in no time. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to stand here and let you do it. And I'll do it, and it's amazing that it doesn't take nearly as much as what we think. But this we is so important in the body of Christ and in relationships and, and in what John is trying to communicate about love. It's we. As soon as it becomes you guys, you guys, you guys, you're losing 
what it is that Jesus died for us to have. As he was praying for us in John 17, Father, make them one so that the world will know that you have sent me. And when we fail at that, then it's not we anymore. Then we're divided. Now, unfortunately, everyone will not... Well, I'm trying to say this, and it's coming out funny even in my own head, but everyone won't do we with us. Yeah, you see the problem. But... (laughs) But at the same time, when we find people who are linked with us, who are connected with us, who we can reach out to them and go, let's us do this. Come on, we can do this. Um, It's so important. It's why I so love um, our home fellowships, because almost every day I hear stories of what God's doing with people just being we and going, let's do this together. Let's, Let's support each other. That's how it's supposed to work. That's what the church is, much more than a giant lecture hall. And uh, so, so he says, look in the right direction, look at yourself, and make sure that we don't lose what we've worked for so we can get the full reward. And then he says, whoever transgresses. Now, this is the third word for walk in this, in this passage. And this is a word for walk combined with the word para, which means alongside or a little ahead of. And so transgressing here, what he's talking about is don't get ahead of God. Don't get ahead of other people. Don't put yourself in a position where you, you're acting like you're better than others. Hang behind. And, and you can see the, the idea of it because he says, whoever transgresses, whoever walks on a separate path and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. And you remember in the Gospel of John where Jesus said, you need to abide in me, stay, hang in there. And, that's, and John is probably alluding to that and saying, slow down there, partner. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't get ahead of everyone else. Don't try to be the first one there. Some people are that way. My son William, when he was little, he, and he, he still has an amazing amount of endurance, but... We'd go on a hike, and he'd just take off. And I'm talking when he's four years old, and he, I couldn't catch him. And he's just heading up a trail, and, and uh, you know, so I start running, and I'd see people, and i go, did you see a little blonde kid, you know, running up the trail? And they go, yeah, he's running like crazy. I go, a blue shirt? They go, no, he took his shirt off. It's tied around his waist, and he's just chugging. And I remember one time we, we were in Hawaii, and we went up to the top of the volcano and he got there and had been up there for a long time knew everyone up there and everything and <laughs> and that's just the way he was but he hated staying behind Danny on the other hand he was never in a big hurry and he's real aggressive now with his mountain biking and snowboarding and everything but back then when we're hiking I'm constantly telling William to hang back and I'm giving Danny skittles to try to get him to, you know okay we get around that corner, I'll give you two more Skittles. And, you know, but people have different paces. But what he's saying is, hang in there. Don't, like, try to be first necessarily. Realize this is a team. This is a team effort. And whoever does that is not going to stay in the doctrine. You're going to start making up your own stuff. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And so he's saying, 
When you start making up your own religion, you're going to go wrong. When you, when you start getting beyond the basics, when you start getting past Jesus, who he is and what he has done, and all you want to talk about is some really high and, you know, all you want to talk about is a hypostatic union or something and uh, super lapsarianism, and never mind, you don't even need to know. But, you know, it's like, wait a minute. Look at you. You're setting your own pace. You're on your own path. And you know what? You're cruising for, for problems because once you get out there on your own, there are a whole lot of people who are going to be telling you a whole lot of stupid things. And you're going to believe them because you don't have the security of functioning within the body. And that's why the Bible says that no scripture is of private interpretation. It's not just you and God. It's you and others with God. That's what protects our doctrine. That's what protects the truth. And so he's saying, hey, you'll start to get into false teaching if you start to always want something new. And then, and then he says, uh, it's the father and the son, you know, the, the family relationship. You're leaving the family. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Uh, literally, don't lay out the red carpet for him, kind of. For he who greets him or endorses him shares in his evil deeds. I've heard people say, use this to say, Oh, if a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knocks on your door, don't let him in. But that's not what he's saying. Probably what he's saying is Cyria had a, had a Bible study meeting at her house. And in those days, quite often, traveling itinerant evangelists, Paul did this a lot. A lot of other guys in the New Testament did as well. And when they would come to a place, then they would get the people together at the house and, hey, let's have a meeting and you can teach us. It was a great tradition of the Jewish synagogues that guest speakers could come in all the time. Perhaps Cyria was involved in the church or had a Bible study at her house, and he's saying, if you see people and they're just not quite right about Jesus, and you can tell that they're ahead of everyone else or they're above everyone else, or you don't feel that love and that grace and that mercy coming from them, don't even give them a platform don't even allow them the privilege of sharing. It's not saying don't talk to them. He would, John, of course, of all people, would say, you need to love them. And when anybody comes to your door, they should feel love. But when somebody comes to the church and they say, oh, I have something I want to share, generally I'd like to know a little more about them because I hear from Nigerian pastors all the time who want to come here and tell you why you should give them money. And so what he's saying is, don't endorse them. Don't put your stamp of approval on them, basically, and let them use you as their reference um, for uh, you know, them taking their false teachings everywhere. So I love this, that he's, he has this practical concern that grew out of a personal concern to say, you need to keep loving your kids. You need to realize they're being assaulted by false teaching. And oh, by the way, make sure that when there's somebody who's off, Tell them they're off. I don't like doing this, you know, and a lot of times I have to talk to somebody who, who is just kind of off biblically, and they have ideas that just aren't consistent with the scriptures, and it's one of the hardest things I do because I, I love people and I want them to know I love them, but sometimes I have to, you know, 
hold that back in order to make sure I'm telling someone the truth because I don't want to be responsible for them believing errors that could destroy them. And often they'll go away and, and think that I'm really rude or a bad person. And, you know, I had a guy this, la this last week who emailed me and he wanted to set up a big debate. And one of, the, one of the churches, one of the Calvaries had said they could do it there. And there's a guy who um, I won't name, but he's a real strong debater for Calvinism. And they wanted me to come and debate him, and, and they thought it would be great. And this guy's just telling me how, oh, I think you'd be the perfect person to do it. You can represent your position really well and everything. And I go, you know what? Um, I really don't have the time to mess with that kind of stuff. And I called it a certain kind of contest, and which he took offense to. But and, and then he just wrote right back to me, blasted me, you know, ripped on me. I knew you'd be chicken. You're like everybody else. You're little. and I'm like, whoa, what happened? I mean, a minute ago, I was this guy who could represent, you know, the scriptures and everything. But because I don't have time to do this show, um, you know, this dog and pony show, then now I'm horrible. Um, but it's so important that we remember what it is that we're really called to do and that we not just get sidetracked all the time. But sometimes if someone's wrong, you have to say it like it is so that other people know. And I, and I really try not to badmouth other ministries um, in church. I, I, don't, I don't think you'll ever hear me saying really bad things about any church. Probably you don't even hear me saying bad things about other religions for the most part. Um, and it would be easy to do it. And it's tempting sometimes to put down other churches that I think I'm jealous of. But the reality is my job is to share good news. At the same time, if you listen and read between the lines, where there's an area where I think Scripture disagrees with the teachings of any other ministry or any other church, I'll address that, but I'm not going to name the people. Or if I do, I'll say, well, this is maybe where we differ with the Roman Catholic Church. And, but I also hope I point out good things about other churches. And I have plenty of good things to say about the LDS Church, the Mormon Church, and, and just about every church I can find good things about them. I want people to know that there are good reasons biblically why I don't think that's um, the best place to get the truth. Um, and so I try to make that clear. But at the same time... Um, I want to have integrity, but without it getting personal, if that makes sense. And, and that's kind of the way I, I read this here, too. Don't endorse them. Make it clear that you disagree with them. Not that you hate them, not that you don't love them, not that you think they're going to hell, just that, you know, we have differences, and I can share that with you without getting all upset about it. Most people who get really mad at people they disagree with, it's because they're not sure they're right. You listen to two people arguing, the one that's the loudest is almost always wrong, or at least they're afraid that they are. And then he finally says, having many things to write to you, it just gets so personal again, I love this, having many things to write to you. I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full, play ra'o, the total package of our joy will be there. I love that he wasn't finished talking, that he felt like I could just go on and on. I, I was telling somebody this week, 
You, you ever get in those phone conversations where you just run out, nobody wants to say anything, but it's awkward, like the other person just doesn't say anything and doesn't want to hang up, and you can tell, but you're just, I'm done, <laughs> you know? And you go, okay, well, I better let you go, and those kinds of things. So much better if you talk to somebody and go, oh, man, I wish we had more time. There's so much more to say. But it shows John's affection for her. And also the fact that he wanted to see her face to face. And that reminded me of Moses when he was in the tent of meeting. And it says that he would sit there and talk with God like a man talks to his friend face to face. He had that contact, that relationship. He was, he was God's friend. And uh, it, talking to someone face to face is different than talking to them on the phone via internet, by text message, by letter, or by anything else. Now, John was an amazing writer. He, he put things into such beautiful words, and yet he was saying, even what I write is insufficient. I just want to see you. Because the expression on my face, I think, can say sometimes more. Sometimes just looking someone in the eye causes us to just have a connection. But he's saying, I want the total package of joy. So, yeah, all right, he couldn't call. I'll send messages by other people, but, man, I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to see you face-to-face. And it's a good lesson to us to just make sure that we don't get all of our communication done in just one medium. Often a written medium can be misunderstood. And at the same time, a written medium is safe because you can edit it and everything before you push send, but sometimes the spontaneity of real conversation when you haven't rehearsed it has a a rustic sort of beauty to it that something that's written very formally wouldn't have and that that just saying I just want to look you in the eye and there's other things I want to say it's interesting that when you write to someone you often find yourself saying lots and lots and lots and when you look them in the eye sometimes you don't have to say that much Sometimes it's just a look or just a hug or, or just a, a nod or a wink or a smile that says so much more. One picture worth a thousand words when it comes to the communication field. And then he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So uh, apparently her sister had kids that were around him, and he was saying they said to say hi to. Amen. So be it. So next Wednesday, we'll go into the letter, the little personal letter to Gaius, book of 3 John. This Sunday, we'll finish up the book of 1 John. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this insight. When you read this 2 John, you realize John wasn't performing for anyone. He wasn't thinking of, I wonder how this will minister to people 2,000 years from now. He was just thinking hey, I just wanted to tell you I love you and I want to remind you of a few things and give you some perspective and help you to see your life and your kids' lives and life at the church and in, a, in a healthy way. And Lord, by preserving that for us, you, you kept a jewel. And we thank you for it, for the privilege that we've had tonight to look into the heart of this special apostle of love, and see how much he cared about his, his friend. Help us to learn to be more and more um, those kinds of loving people. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.